Good morning. Welcome again. We uh, have some pretty heavy-duty theology today, so I hope you all have had your coffee. Please pay attention more than you usually do. Let's pray, and then I'll read and jump in. Father, thank you that you speak to us in the Bible, even today, many thousands of years after it was first written. You continue to speak to us this wonderful word, more precious to us than all the money in the world, uh, sweeter to us than even the greatest honey. Lord, help us to enjoy and savor what you have to say to us today. Help us especially to see who Jesus is and what it means that he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. We pray in his name. Amen. The New Testament opens with the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. They are something like theological biographies. They help us to see, each in their own way, four different ways, but they each help us to see and to understand who Jesus is in light of who God is and what God is doing in the world. That's what I mean when I say they are theological biographies. Unlike modern biographies, the Gospels spend very little time on Jesus' childhood. Only two of them even mention him being born or talk about how he was born. Uh, all four of them skip over the vast majority of his life. Uh, all four of them focus almost entirely on the last three years of his life. And then all four of them really focus on how Jesus died. If this was a modern biography, you would find it very strange. When we last heard about Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew... He was a little boy whose family had just moved to the laughable backwoods town of Nazareth. And so now we've heard a little bit about John the Baptist last week, but now we've skipped forward in Jesus' life by nearly 30 years. Jesus, in the meantime, has grown up. He's learned how to read. He's probably fallen out of his share of trees. He's grown chest hair. Like his dad, Joseph... Through his teens and through his 20s, he's been swinging a hammer on various construction sites. Jesus has been leading a very ordinary, a very private life, even a very obscure life. We don't know anything about this entire period of his life. But now in Matthew 3, we hear that something changes. Listen to this. Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Be Notice there that first verse. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. You see, Jesus, at this point in the gospel story, Jesus is purposefully and somberly leaving 
the private life of a small town tradesman for the public life of God's messianic king. After 30 long and quiet years, Jesus is finally ready. He's finally ready to do what God has called him to do. The thing that his very name has told us early on. Remember the angel saying, Joseph, you're going to give him this name? His name means that God is going to save his people from their sins. He's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is finally ready now, at 30 years old, to bring his name into reality. The Gospel of Matthew, as it goes on, describes how Jesus does this, how his name becomes true what this mission is going to look like. But before you get to what we might consider the real action, the real events of Jesus' life, before we get to that, about learning about him teaching, learning about him healing, learning about him battling with demons and various hypocritical leaders, and especially before we get to Jesus dying, the thing that the Gospels seem most interested in, before we get to all that, we have this account of Jesus' baptism, this dramatic transition point from private life to public mission. It's only a few verses long, but this little story of Jesus' baptism helps us to understand everything else that he's going to be doing in his public ministry. It helps us to understand who he is and what he's come to do. I don't know if you caught it as I was reading it, but there's two times in these few verses where Matthew literally tells us to look. He says, behold. It's a way of saying, pay attention to what's happening right now. You see it first there at the end of verse 16. It's the climax to verses 13 to 16. Matthew says this to us. He says, look, Jesus is for us. And then in verse 17, Matthew says to us, look, Jesus is before the Father. But first, let's look at verses 13 to 16, where Matthew is telling us to look. Jesus is for us. Jesus has left his old life totally behind. He takes a few days to walk 70 miles, which is about the distance from here to the Alamo. He walks down to the wilderness area where this new and very strange prophet John is shouting out in the wilderness about the need to repent because of God's coming wrath. John is there baptizing people in the river Jordan as a sign of the new, purified, clean life that God's people must commit to in order to escape God's judgment, in order to enjoy the blessings of God's kingdom. And so Jesus goes all the way down there. He gets in line at the riverside for John's baptism. And so John there is moving down the line. Here comes a prostitute. John says to her, do you repent? Are you ready to do things God's way? She says, yes. John baptizes her. He says, bear fruit now in keeping with repentance. Next. Then comes the town drunk. Do you repent? Are you going to do things God's way? Yes, I will. Okay, great. Baptizes the drunk. Then comes the narcissistic, guilt-tripping mom who smothers all her kids. He says, do you repent? She says, yeah, I repent. John baptizes her. And then comes a rabbi. He's been stealing from the offering plate. He repents. John baptizes him. And then some bureaucrats come. Some politicians come. Some bankers come. Some professors come. Some middle managers who are lying and conniving and cheating because they want to get promoted. They come, they all repent. John baptizes them. And then John looks up, next in line. And who does he see? He sees Jesus. This is his cousin. He knows, we saw last week, he knows that Jesus 
is God's chosen king, the one whom John has been getting everybody ready for, the one who's going to usher in God's kingdom in all of its glory and purity and beauty. John has been preaching that this King Jesus was so great that John's not even worthy to carry his shoes around for him. And so then you hear in verse 14, John looks up and sees Jesus there in line and he says, Whoa, what are you doing here? John realizes that Jesus' baptism of fire, his baptism of the Holy Spirit that we heard about last week, his power to purify and transform and reorient God's people and their hearts, John realizes that Jesus' own baptism is much greater than his own symbolic baptism of water. And so he starts arguing with Jesus. He says, you should be baptizing me. I should not be baptizing you. But then in verse 15, Jesus says to him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Jesus wins the argument. The first thing that we are seeing here at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry is his great humility. His great, even his shocking humility. Jesus does not deny that he is so much greater than John. Of course, it goes without saying. But he says to John, I want to submit myself to you, even though, really, you're my servant and I'm your master. But it's not just that Jesus is a particularly humble guy. It's not just that Jesus is humbly submitting to John. But the main point is that Jesus is humbly submitting to God's law for all of humanity. That's what Jesus means when he says that he wants to be baptized so that all righteousness will be fulfilled. And so, unlike the prostitutes and the politicians over there on the shore drying themselves off, unlike them, Jesus does not need John's baptism of repentance. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived who's never sinned. He's the only person who's ever lived who had nothing to repent of. Jesus has always done, Jesus will always be doing what God wants. Jesus has always loved doing God's will. Jesus will always love doing it. So Jesus doesn't need John's baptism. But in going to John and submitting himself to John's baptism, Jesus is showing that he's identifying himself with us. Jesus is entering into the sadness and the chaos and the misery of sinful humanity. Without himself being in the least sinful, Jesus is coming alongside of us. He's entering into our experience. He has become human with us. Jesus does not just stay in heaven as the eternal Son of God, cheering us on from up there, saying, hey, keep it up. You guys are doing good. Uh, I'll stay here. You stay down there. Uh, Jesus doesn't even come down to earth and drive around in a Pope mobile, staying aloof from us, saying, well, you guys are kind of sinful. I'm going to stay away from you, but I'll, I'll kind of be over here and you can look at me and maybe hear some of the things I have to say. That's not what Jesus does. Two years ago, our daughter Magnolia was very sick in the ICU 
because somebody from church accidentally gave our whole family RSV, as happens sometimes. Somebody from the church, I don't want to embarrass her, so I'm not going to say her name. Somebody in the church knows a lot about ICUs and how they work. Uh, and so she actually came with my wife, Marika, uh, when we had to rush back into the emergency room because our daughter couldn't breathe. Uh, and this friend, this sister in the church, kind of took over for Marika there at the emergency room. She was bossing the nurses around, telling them what to do. Uh, she was demanding what was necessary. She was anticipating uh, where things could go wrong, and it was really wonderful. She could have just sent us a text message. She could have just prayed for us, which would have been great, but she did a lot more than that. She came with us. She came alongside of us to represent us. Did she need to be there? No, she didn't need to be there. Was Magnolia her daughter? No, not her daughter. But she came, and she made our problems into her problems. I think that's similar to what Jesus is doing here in coming for a baptism that he doesn't actually need. Jesus has come for us. He's come to make our problems his problems. He's come on behalf of us. He's come to represent us. He's come, in a sense, to be us. Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness. He's come to do everything that we humans are supposed to do. He's come to obey God's law. Now, sometimes when we hear about God's law, we hear words like righteousness and holiness and being sanctified. We think that it's just some kind of abstract set of rules. Uh, we think maybe God's being a party pooper. God is a killjoy who doesn't want us to enjoy life. But we need to understand that God's law, uh, the righteousness, the standard of what's right and wrong, that this is actually an expression of God's own wise and loving character. Obeying God is what we were made to do. You see, obedience to God is conforming yourself to the way the world actually works. Not the way you want it to be, but the way it actually is. Because it's God's world. Righteousness is a word that means what's right, what's fitting, what's straight. Uh, we've seen uh, through Advent, as we talked about Jesus' infancy and childhood, we saw that Adam and Eve and all humans after them have thought that we've known better than God. We thought we knew what was best for ourselves, and so we've snubbed and bristled at God's law. We said, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to be in charge of my life. Even we saw Israel doing this, uh, in spite of the fact that they had all of these wonderful blessings, all of these wonderful privileges, all of this clear communication from God. Even they still did the same basic thing. They bristled at what God had to say and tell them. And so Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness as a human. He's come as Adam 2.0. He's come as the new Israel. He's come as the new humanity, succeeding in every way that we've failed. And so his purposeful, his humble submission to John's baptism is this confident, this very public declaration that he is identifying with us in all of our misery. If you've been baptized, even if you were a baby when it happened, your baptism is a very precious emblem. It should be a precious emblem to you. It should be a declaration. It is a declaration to you that Jesus identifies with you, that Jesus 
is personally interested in you, that Jesus has claimed you and said, I have come for you. It's a wonderful thing for us when we're struggling, when we're discouraged, when we're facing sin, to consider our baptism and what it means, how often we forget about our baptisms, we act like it's not even there. Jesus, knowing that Jesus has identified himself with me, with us, should motivate us to believe in him. It should motivate us to embrace who he is and what he's come to give us. It should motivate us to live a life of repentance, a life that shows how grateful we are for everything that God's done for us. But Jesus has not only come for us in the sense of identifying with us in our misery, Jesus has also come for us in the sense of rescuing us from our misery. I'll say that again. Jesus has not only come for us in the sense that he's come to identify with us. Jesus has also come for us in a slightly different way in order to rescue us from our misery. He does not just come alongside us and say, I feel your pain. He does something about it. Look at verse 16. Two supernatural events there at Jesus' baptism that help us to understand what Jesus has come to do. The opening of the heavens and the descending of the Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, Matthew says, look, watch this, pay attention. He says, look, the heavens are opening up. Metaphorically speaking, in the biblical way of thinking about God, God is up there and we are down here. God is, of course, not literally, physically above us. He doesn't have a body. He's everywhere. But the point is that we are separated from God and God is separated from us. There's a place uh, where the Old Testament prophet Isaiah suddenly cries out in agony to God and says, oh, that you would rip apart the heavens and come down. Staring at this sky, silent, wondering where God is, divided from him. Isaiah says, rip it apart and come down and rescue us. Now, if you were standing there at Jesus' baptism, I'm not exactly sure what you would have seen in the sky, but the point is that when Jesus comes to carry out God's mission, those heavens open up. The path to paradise has been cleared. God has broken his silence. The point is that Jesus makes it possible for us, in spite of our sin, to go back to God and for God to come back to us. It means we can go home again. It means you don't have to be orphans anymore. It means you can hear from God. It means you can speak to God. It means you can know God. All of that is wrapped up in this image of the heavens being ripped open. The modern world says that the universe is a closed system, that we're on our own, that there's no real purpose or direction to anything, that all of it will eventually burn out in heat death. But at the baptism of Jesus, with the heavens ripping open, God is saying to the modern world, no. There is a real home beyond this world. And in Jesus, the way to it is now open. Jesus came to open our way back to God, to open God's way back 
to us. So he came to rescue us from our misery by opening the heavens, so to speak. But also we see this in this image, this event of the descent of the Spirit. You hear in verse 16 that Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now Jesus has always been filled with the Spirit, even from his conception. We heard about that uh, last month. But what you are seeing here, you're not seeing Jesus getting the Spirit for the first time, so to speak. That's not really what's happening. What you're seeing is the Spirit empowering Jesus for public ministry. This is similar to what happens at Pentecost. It's not that the disciples are becoming Christians. It's not that they are getting the Spirit for the first time. It's that the disciples at Pentecost are getting power to do God's work. Jesus is being empowered to carry out God's mission of rescuing lost humanity and with humanity the entire cosmos. You hear throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophet Isaiah, that God's messianic servant was going to be marked by the descent or the pouring out or the resting upon of God's Spirit on him. Uh, We read earlier in the service from the first servant song of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42 Uh, That's the first one. The fourth and final one climaxes with the servant handing himself over to death on behalf of sinners. But listen again to these verses from Isaiah 42 and think about what we've just heard about at Jesus' baptism. This is God speaking. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. You hear already what the Father was saying at the baptism? You're my beloved son. Behold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's one of a few places where Isaiah talks about the spirit coming to rest upon God's king. God is going to place his spirit on his servant so that he will bring forth God's justice to the nations. But notice and remember from verse 2 in Isaiah 42, notice the gentleness and the humility with which he's going to do all this. Isaiah 42, verse 2, He, referring to the servant upon whom the servant rests, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering candle he will not snuff out. And so you see what's going on. He's going to bring forth God's justice to the nations. Wow. Sounds pretty exciting. Sounds pretty powerful. But notice that he's not going to run around beating everybody over the head. He's not going to go around scoffing at everybody's self-inflicted misery. He's not going to squash the weak and trample the needy. He is bringing justice. He's bringing judgment and righteousness into the world. And with that, there will be real and terrifying wrath. Psalm 2, we started the service this morning with Psalm 2. Psalm 2 speaks to that for us. And then we even get an echo of it here at Jesus' baptism when the Father says, you are my beloved son. Remember that from Psalm 2? Here's the decree. Let me tell you what it is. You are my son. Jesus' baptism echoes that. You have this kind of ironic bringing together of a judgment psalm. Jesus is God's king who's going to bring God's righteousness and wrath to a world of evil. But Isaiah helps us to understand that he's going to do it in a way that's gentle towards the weak and the needy. 
Notice here that in the power of the Spirit, according to Isaiah, God's servant Jesus is particularly oriented toward restoring the weak. There is judgment, there is wrath to come. But Isaiah's point, and much of the point of this story in Matthew, is that Jesus is particularly oriented toward healing the frail, consoling the anxious. Jesus is very tender toward those who admit that they are helpless. Later on, Jesus will say it like this in Matthew. He'll say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Notice the condition of coming to Jesus is being weary. He's having burdens. As we say today, having baggage. That's the condition of coming to Jesus. This, I think, is part of the reason why the Spirit descends in the form of a dove, not a bald eagle, not a vulture, but a dove, a very gentle and lowly bird all through the Bible. Uh, There are, of course, with the dove coming down upon Jesus, this is an amazing passage, it's so loaded with so many images from the Bible. Uh, There is, of course, an echo here of the original creation, Genesis 1, verse 3, the third verse of the Bible, says that there the Spirit of God is hovering and fluttering like a bird over the watery chaos. Uh, We also have here an echo of Noah's flood, where uh, Noah's flood is like a recreation of the world through judgment, Uh, and at the end of it, a dove returns to Noah with an olive branch in its mouth. And so part of the point here, as the dove is returning to the water, so to speak, part of the point is that with Jesus, there is a new creation. God is doing things over again. There is a renewal, a restoration of God's original plan for humanity. But when you take these images about uh, the dove and water in the Bible, birds and water, creation, new creation, you take those images and you pair them with Isaiah's images about how God's going to place his spirit onto his gentle, suffering servant, it's coming clearer into focus. God's new creation through this humble Jesus is going to come about through his tender and lowly service on behalf of miserable sinners. You and me. Bent reeds, smoking candles. And so Matthew says, behold, Jesus is for us. The Spirit is empowering him to humbly fulfill all righteousness. He obeys God's law for humanity as a human, all with the aim of gently restoring us in our weakness and our weariness. Jesus stands eager and ready to help you and to serve you, not in spite of your failures, not in spite of your frailty, but actually in the midst of them, actually because of them. So that's Matthew's first point. Behold, Jesus is for us. But look at verse 17. Behold, he says again, Jesus is before the Father. The heavens have opened up, the Spirit has descended, and now Matthew tells us again, you got to pay attention to this. He says, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So you have there, Psalm 2, you are my Son, combined with Isaiah 42, 
my servant whom I love, my servant in whom I delight. You have the whole trinity here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You have the Father delighting in the Son in the love of the Spirit. One God eternally existing in three persons. You'll see all three of them together again at a baptism, at baptism at the end of Matthew when Jesus sends out his disciples to baptize new disciples into the one name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Uh, If you are here today and you've been baptized, you've had the one name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit spoken over you. Now God has always been and always will be three-personed. He will always be triune. The Father has always been the Father of the Son, and the Son has always been the Son of the Father, and so on. They have always delighted in each other. They have always shared a perfect and an infinite love with one another. And so the Father has always been saying for all of eternity, you are my beloved Son in whom I delight. And so there's a sense in which this statement from heaven at the baptism of Jesus is nothing new. This is uh, drawing us into the depths of God's very nature. But there is another sense in which this statement at Jesus' baptism is actually something radically new, something profoundly significant. Notice that the Father says, this is my beloved Son. He does not say this privately to Jesus himself only, maybe while Jesus was walking down there, maybe while Jesus heads out into the wilderness. Uh, No, that's not when the Father says it. It's not a private message for Jesus. Uh, He says, this is my beloved Son. He's making a statement to somebody else. He's making a statement for everybody who's watching. He's making a statement for us. He's saying to us today, like he was saying to the prostitutes and the politicians there on the shoreline, He's saying to us today, this one is my beloved son. I delight in him. Do you know that? Do you see that? Notice also when the father is saying it. He's saying it just as Jesus is identifying himself as a human with humans. Just as Jesus is beginning his public ministry as a human to rescue humans. It's at that point that the Father says to all those bystanders, and he says to us today, this is my son. I love him. I delight in him and what he's doing. And so you see the point there? I never noticed this till this week. You see the point? You're seeing here the love of the Father for his human son, Jesus. The Father loves the Son because the Son is coming to save us. Because the Son is perfectly obeying and reflecting the Father, even and especially as a human. God is saying, oh, my image bearers, the pinnacle of the universe, my greatest creation, humanity, it's coming back to me. These humans that I love so much. I'm going to have them home again. It is so different. This exalted view of human beings is so different than how the modern world views humanity. Sometimes we hear today, you are an accident. You are just 
highly evolved, highly advanced pond slime. You have no meaning, you have no significance, you have no value, you are just chemicals and molecules bouncing around. At the end of the day, that's what you really are. Sometimes you hear something slightly different. You hear this, you are a soul imprisoned in a human body. You are reincarnated from some other form of life. You will be reincarnated into some other form of life. But in any case, the whole entire world is a prison, and the point of it all is to escape by, being in, by getting into nirvana and therefore becoming nothing. Your humanity is accidental. It's incidental to who you really are. It doesn't matter. The point is to get away from it. How different that is than what you see here. Because in his baptism and in his ministry, Jesus is identifying himself with us, this delight of the Father, this love of the Father is also for us to hear and to accept and to receive. Do you see that? The Son has always been the Son. He is the natural Son of the Father. But we are being adopted into God's family. We are unnatural sons. But even so, this love and this delight in the Son is for our sake. Jesus didn't need to hear this. Jesus knows this already. God delights in the Son as a human who has come for humans. And so now that Jesus has descended into the muck of human misery, now that Jesus has publicly committed to gently rescuing and restoring us from our sin and our suffering, the Father doesn't turn up his nose and say, whoa, never mind. These people are really disgusting. I don't know about this. They're too messed up. That's not what he does. It's at that point that the Father overflows with delight. The Father says, this is my beloved Son. He's doing just what I want. He's coming just on the mission I want him to do. I'm so happy that he's human. I'm so happy that he's coming to rescue humans. The Father delights in Jesus at his baptism as a human, as a servant king, the obedient son who's come to gently restore the lost and the weary and the heavy laden. And so again, this means that the Father's pronouncement over the Son, I love you, I delight in you, that means that that pronouncement over his Son can now be yours. It's a message for you. The Father says, I love you. I delight in you, not because of anything in you, but because of what his son has done for you, because of what his son has made you into. And so the point for us as we close is this. Give yourself to Jesus in everything that you do. Find there as you give yourself to him, maybe for the first time, maybe for the zillionth time, find there that Jesus has identified himself with you. What's his is now yours. The love of the Father, the delight of the Father, it's yours just as much as it's His. Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness for you before the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You have adopted us as Your children in spite of our sin, in spite of our scoffing at your law and what you have to say to us, in spite of all the ways that we keep sinning, all the ways that we keep struggling and falling so short of what we should be doing. Thank you that you delight in us because you delight in Jesus, our human Savior, our human mediator, our human servant. 
Help us to find in him fresh joy, fresh encouragement and strength to love you, to respond to you as we should. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.